0: Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and today I have another guest with me. So um, this guest that I'm going to be having on with me is a very good friend of mine. He's been a good friend for many years, and we have spoken together um, at apologetics conferences, and he is uh, an awesome friend. Let's just say this this individual that I'm about to introduce uh, was one of the people when I started revealed apologetics. He encouraged me and um, really kind of just, you know, said, "Hey, I know God is going to use you." And and he gave me uh, really that that boost and encouragement that a brother in Christ uh, would give, right? Uh, and I really just appreciated his uh, his friendship and just many conversations that we've had, uh, whether it's um, on theology or apologetics. This guy is the real deal. He is an awesome apologist. He is an excellent teacher. He's got a way to really um, simplify complicated topics. So every time I listen to him explain something, I'm like, mm, I should have said that, bro. You know, <laughs> so he's 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 got the he's the acronym king. He makes acronyms to help people remember things. And it's just so stinking helpful. So, um, I am very, very excited to have my friend and fellow apologist and now elder slash pastor. He'll kind of explain that the title of this episode is, um, you know, an uh, uh an elder gets grilled. I want to, he's going to explain to you what that's all about. And, um, hopefully we can draw some important and useful elements from his experience, uh, so that hopefully, um, the body of christ can be benefited from it so uh, but before we do that i want to kind of uh throw this out and i'll kind of remind people throughout the the episode if you're looking to support revealed apologetics it would be greatly appreciated um uh, and you can do so by um checking out this uh upcoming conference that i will be hosting we we hosted the epic online pre conference which did really well we had a bunch of people sign up and each of the speakers really brought their A-game. And uh, for those who missed that, you can actually still purchase at a, at a reduced price. Purchase that conference uh, on the website, revealedapologetics.com. You can go to uh, Presup U, and you could purchase those recordings. that comes along with the, uh, the PowerPoint presentations and the notes that each of the speakers brought. But this uh, conference, the Epic Online Calvinism Conference, um, I'm super excited about this one. I've got James White. Uh, I've got Guillaume Bignon, I've got Saiten Brugencade and Scott Christensen and myself, and we're going to be covering uh, a wide range of issues relating to, um, Calvinism just to give you a taste. Okay. I will post this later, but, um, my topic is undecided. I'm still working through a topic that I will be presenting. It's going to be on January 21st. Okay. From 10 AM to 4:30 PM. It's going to be an all day thing. Dr. White is going to be presenting on some key passages relevant to defending the Calvinist position. Uh, Dr. Guillaume Bignon is going to be explaining the proper use of analogies. So when people bring up analogies against the Calvinist position, Guillaume is going to help us navigate how to respond to um, analogies that are not being used appropriately. I think that's a really important um topic to kind of, uh, get a grasp on. Um, so that's going to be exciting. I'm really excited for that. Uh, Scott Christensen is going to, um, be bringing uh, a talk entitled in defense of compatibilism. So we'll get some, uh, discussions on, on free will and, and things like that. And what is, uh, a good old Calvinist defense of a compatibilist position. And Saiten Brugencade is going to be presenting on, st- uh, uh, Calvinism, uh, from, you know, street Calvinism, you know, how do we talk about reform theology on the street level within the context of evangelism and things like that. So I'm uh, super excited about those topics. I may, I'm kind of juggling, I may talk about Calvinism and Molinism or, uh, something related to, uh, anything along those lines. And so I'm super excited. So if you're looking to support Revealed Apologetics, one of the best ways you could do that is sign up for this conference right now. It's available, uh, to RSVP on revealedapologetics.com. Click on the Pre-SUP U, uh menu, and you could RSVP for that conference on January 21st, um, 2023. That's so weird to think about. We're already coming up to the new year. So without uh, with that out of the way, um, I'd like to introduce my good friend, Anthony
1: Juvenio. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing well, pal. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm just hoping that I can live up to your <laughs> your your little introduction to me.
0: <laughs> that's, always, that's always awkward. He's inspiring. a great guy and he explains things really well. And then after the show, he's like, that guy was really weird and I couldn't understand anything he said. I'm sure no one's going to say that. But um, <laughs> so let's jump right in. Okay, yeah. so mm-hmm. you got grilled recently uh, mm-hmm. and you had to go through this long exam in which you had to stand before, uh, you know, the Sanhedrin. No, I'm just kidding. You had <laughs> to stand before uh, a bunch of pastors and leaders and answer their doctrinal uh, questions. So um, why don't you unpack that for us? What's the context for that? What was the exam about? What are you doing now in light of the fact that we assume that you passed? <laughs> okay,
1: uh, why don't you explain that for us? Sure, so uh, to be an elder uh, in our church anyway, you need to be examined by, by your peers. Sure. Uh, and they're gonna test you to make sure that you understand what biblical doctrine is, uh, that you don't hold any heretical views, and they're going to press you. They're going to ask you questions that are going to, that are going to be more, uh, more challenging than a, than a normal conversation because they want to make sure that you are equipped to handle the office. I mean, we, we need to have strong biblical elders, uh, governing over the churches because we're the ones who teach the flock. We guard the flock, you know, and and an elder's job is to lead, feed, correct, and protect. So how can I lead the, the, the congregation if I don't know sound theology? How can I protect them from false teachers if I don't know what false teaching is? Right. So it's real important that an elder have a, a well-rounded understanding of all topics in theology. You don't have to be an expert. I mean, it helps, obviously. Sure. Uh, but you want to make sure that you're well-versed in all of these things so that you can give an answer for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. Right. That's
0: awesome. Well, you kind of just made me think of, I'm looking for a passage here, Jeremiah chapter nine, verse uh, 20. I'm going to do it old fashioned way. Usually I use my phone or it's a screen. I'm going to read from a physical (laughs) Bible here. My, my nifty uh, John MacArthur study Bible. I have to skip over the dispensationalism. So I have to make sure (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. So Jeremiah chapter nine, verse 23. Okay, I I typically use this verse, Anthony, when people ask, like, well, why why is theology so important? Why is doctrine so important? Um, And I want to share this with folks here. So Jeremiah chapter nine, verse twenty three says the following. It says, thus says the Lord. Now, I want you to listen to this listeners. Okay, God is speaking here right uh, through Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this. Okay. Uh, God is telling us now there is something worthy of boasting about that. He understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. God delights in the fact that we know and understand. And of course, Anthony, that involves not just the mental capacity to know like propositions about God but also to know God relationally. So why is theology important? Because God delights in our knowing him, knowing Mm -hmm. him and knowing him, right? Mm -hmm. Relationship, right? And I think that's so important. What role does theology play in your personal life? How does doctrine in general
1: impact how you live your life, Anthony? Well, Paul tells uh, Timothy to watch your life and your doctrine closely. Mm -hmm. uh, Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Mm. Right. That's that's really uh, a heavy verse to watch your life and your doctrine closely. He puts those two things side by side Mm. such that if your doctrine is off, your life is going to be off. Right. Right? So, you know, we've talked about this before. Our job is to think God's thoughts after him. He's the author of life. He's the, the creator of the universe. He's the one who set up the parameters. What better way to live life? Than by using the the principles that God's given us to live life correctly. Um, the book of Proverbs, my my, my pastor says, Proverbs is um, basically how to live life skillfully. Mm. So how to live a life with skill. You you look through the Proverbs and you read those, and the wisdom that you glean from that just helps you in everyday ordinary life. I mean, again, this is when we when we recognize what the Bible actually is. It's God-breathed. It's divine in nature, and he's given that to us. We have everything we need for life and godliness in the scriptures. My goodness, what a tremendous advantage mm-hmm. over unbelievers or people who reject the scriptures to live a life that uh, that is according to the author of life. Right, right. So I don't remember where I, where I read it's it. Good. It
0: might have been in a textbook that I had to read when I was in seminary, but it, it was talking about different ways of doing apologetics and you have like historical apologetics, Mm. philosophical apologetics, scientific Mm. apologetics. Um, And then there was one section called incarnational apologetics, Mm. Uh, incarnational in, in the flesh, you are defending Mm. the faith in the flesh in the manner in which you live. And sometimes that is just as, or even more powerful than rational argument when you're able to kind of uh, show existentially through like the way you live your life, how Christ has transformed you. And so I think that's a, a powerful uh, tool for defending the faith, as well as just being obedient to the Lord, right? Demonstrating our love for him. So sure. uh, super, super important. Now, okay. Um, now, the super cool thing about all of this, so you're grilled in this this kind of this exam, this uh, grill fest where they just asked you a bunch of questions. And the reason why I wanted to have you on, because I know we primarily focus on apologetics here, even mm-hmm. though it was a test for ordination, everything they asked you, everything had apologetic import. Sure. And so they started right where they should have started, asking you questions about bibliology. Now, Mm -hmm. can you define for us what bibliology is and why it's important to have a proper bibliology?
1: Bibliology would basically be a study of the scriptures. You know, what is the Bible? Uh, What books are contained in the Bible? Why is it that the Bible is is our standard? Like you and I would hold to Sola Scriptura. We would recognize that the scripture is the sole infallible rule of faith. It doesn't mean that the scripture is the only authority, like we have pastors and teachers and evangelists, but pastors, teachers, and evangelists are human beings stained by sin, so they're not infallible. Right. Since the scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching through proof, correction, and in training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is the basis for everything that we teach and know so Mm. if if we're going to live lives and think god's thoughts after him he's given us his thoughts inscripturated so the bible contains god's words it contains everything that he wants us to know jesus says sanctify them by your truth your word is truth right so the word sanctifies us as we read it it corrects our crooked thinking such that We can think the way God wants us to think and live lives that magnify and glorify him. So everything starts on with the scriptures. The church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the church holds the scriptures up Mm. as, as the rule of faith. The church didn't give us the scriptures. The scriptures gave us the church we have to recognize that authority scheme sorry, because ca- sorry catholics <laughs> <laughs> well yeah look if 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 you think that the church gave us this the scriptures now god used the church to bring the scriptures to us sure. of course sure. but the the word of god says itself that god's word is settled in the heavens forever hmm. the scriptures come top down not bottom up so when we recognize that you have in your hand a divine instrument, breathe out by God. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. That in and of itself is is worthy of awe. Yeah. So and, and Moses would tell us in Deuteronomy 8, 3, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word out of the mouth of God. Mm. Not just some of the words, every word. That's why Paul labors in the book of Acts to say, I taught you the whole counsel of God. There's not one word that God uttered in the scriptures that is unimportant. Every mm-hmm. single word is important such that we eat them. We, can, we can't we can live just by food. We need to ingest and take God's word in every single
0: day. If you keep going, Anthony, we're going to have to collect the offering. Like you're preaching there. That's good stuff. <laughs>
1: whatever, whatever's going to help your ministry.
0: I'm committed to it. <laughs> that's right. We're going to collect offering. We'll ask a sister. Uh, so-and-so to sing a, a song, a special. Um, now, now that's awesome. So um, there are a lot, a lot of things that you said there uh, again, yeah. everything that you just said is apologetically relevant, understanding sure. the, the nature mm-hmm. and role of scripture. Uh, what mm-hmm. is the role of scripture uh, in terms of its authority? What is the nature of that authority? And then I have a follow-up question uh, here now, now as presuppositionalist, I think that question this question is very relevant for those mm-hmm. who are listening and are saying hey I'm trying to get a firm grasp on presuppositional mm-hmm. apologetics whatever understanding the role of the authority of scripture is vital can you unpack that for us what does it mean to say that the scriptures are authoritative
1: it means that the scriptures are what god wanted to convey to us infallibly right without error such that we can live lives that magnify and glorify him. Hmm. So if if God, if this Bible is God's word which I believe it is, um, every single one of those words are perfect. They are exactly what we need uh, in order to live lives again to glorify God, to love God with all our heart's all mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. So the scriptures have to take precedent over any other authority because every other authority must be subservient to God. Okay. It, when we say that that, that scriptures are God breathed, that's the Greek word theopneustos, right? Mm-hmm. They are inspired. Or right? inspired really isn't the right word. It's expired. But when you say God's word expired, people think, oh, it's old. It, you know, it, it like milk it, 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 it's
0: expired banned. by expired <laughs> by, and then it has a date. You know, <laughs> right?
1: So God's truth never expires. God's truth is true no matter when it's. There is no expiration date on truth. So the scriptures are our divine authority because in it, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Hmm. So that has to be the supreme authority because there's no human authority that can be as perfect as the scriptures. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, so now this is relevant. I guess I said to apologetics, I I mean, um, some people might disagree with this. I think both of us are in agreement. Uh, Catholics, for example, Hmm. are objects of evangelism. So when someone converts to Catholicism, we don't be like, oh, it's okay. It's just another denomination. Actually, there's some core uh, differences between what we would call biblical Christianity and, um, you know, a presentation of a gospel that doesn't save. And so I have no qualms about saying that. I know that's kind of controversial these days. Um, right. But um, when we talk to Catholics, uh, the issue of authority comes up often, um, hmm. and so we are we're often attacked on our stance as Reformed Protestants um, on. On Sola Scriptura. So if someone says, well, how do you know Sola Scriptura is true? um, And how do you know that, you you know, you have the right books of the Bible in your Bible? You know, the Catholic Church Mm -hmm. gave you those things, right? There's something along Mm -hmm. those lines. I'm kind of being, uh, you know, lazy here. I'm kind of just throwing it out there. Mm -hmm. Folks know where I'm coming from. When Mm -hmm. we defend the books of the Bible as being the canon that we should have, Mm -hmm. the Catholic will be quick to point out as soon as you appeal to church history, but wait a minute, you see, you need mm-hmm. the tradition to know what scripture is, okay? And so they will point to the fact that because we point outside of the Bible evidence for a particular Bible belonging in, in the canon, they'll say, see, you don't follow your own principle of Sola Scriptura. Mm-hmm. How would you interact with something like that? Because that's that's an apologetic issue, because yeah. Catholic is questioning the very nature of our understanding of the authority of scripture, the role of, say, external evidence uh, in support Mm -hmm. of biblical books and things
1: like that? How would you engage Mm -hmm. in that? Sure. I would use the illustration that Michael Kruger uses. And and, and I I loved it uh, when I I first heard him talk about it. He says, uh, knowing what the scriptures are is basically like a thermostat. Okay. Mm -hmm. When you look at the thermostat, the thermostat will tell you what the temperature in the room is. Okay, Okay, so it's if I look at the thermostat, it says 68 degrees. I know that it's 68 degrees in the room now. I could also hit the buttons and set the thermostat for 71 degrees, right? So, how does that relate to the scriptures? Well, the thermostat is like a thermometer, it tells you what the temperature of the room is. In other words, you read the thermometer and you recognize that the temperature in the room is 68 degrees. Mm -hmm. The church. Uh, let's say in Roman Catholicism, they would say the church tells us what the scriptures are. So they dialed up 71 degrees and says, OK, now this is what the scriptures are. So I see God giving the scriptures to his church and the church like the thermometer, recognizing what the scriptures were not define, not not making them scripture. Mm. God gives us the scripture. God's body, his church, recognizes what what his scripture is and gives it out to to the rest of the people. Mm. Same way that the Old Testament Jews recognized what scripture was without having a pope and all this ecclesiastical authority that the Roman Catholic Church has. Right.
0: Excellent. Well, cool. Again, I hope people see that that's, that's apologetically relevant, right, to understand how we got the Bible. Uh, the sure. role of the authority of the Bible and how that, but by the way, the authority of the Bible even allows for us to appeal to uh, external evidences for its own, its own, uh, um, I don't want to say validity. I mean, God, the Bible is self-attesting, but you get what I'm saying. There's nothing, uh, there's nothing uh, against the content of Sola Scriptura uh, by appealing to sources outside the Bible to support or give evidence for why a particular book uh, is, is to be canon. Uh, if that makes sense.
1: Right, absolutely, and and it's yeah. it's it's not that you you can't appeal to um, uh, churches authorities. in the past that yeah. recognized and other mm. authorities that recognized that these were the scriptures. Yeah, we just recognize that those authorities are not infallible. Right, they could they could make mistakes and have. I don't right. I don't think there's there's one early church father that hasn't. They they don't have unanimity. That's for sure. sure.
0: Right, 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 right.
1: They're all over the place. They look much like the Protestant Church. But they're united on the essentials, right? Sure. So we look at the essentials and say, wow, this this mm. formed the core basis for Christianity. And yeah. then there's non-essentials and things they differed on that I think we have room to differ on. Mm-hmm.
0: So when you were being asked these questions, what in your opinion, when you were when they were talking about kind of the your views on the Bible, what was the hardest question that they asked? If you remember, kind of like oh, you know, because you don't know what they're gonna ask, you're kind of just no, being no. thrilled. You, you literally are when you're being tested a living embodiment of first peter through 15 where you have to always be ready <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you literally have to prepare in the sense that you're ready to respond to uh whatever they might ask you and sometimes they can throw curveballs was there any curveball question with respect to the authority of
1: scripture that when they asked you were kind of like oh my god i gotta really think about that one there weren't any curveball questions but what what you're allowed to do but before you go uh before the ordination council you have to write an ordination paper Okay. And you go through you go through 10 topics and one of them is bibliology. So and you're allowed to quote other sources. So I had quoted Wayne Grudem um, in his systematic theology, showing that the early church, uh, Jerome, uh, Athanasius and even Josephus had the the 39 books of, of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the questions to me was and because I also cited that in 386 in the Council of Carthage, they codified the the um the books of the bible uh, as as the the 66 that we have today so he wanted to know was it the church that gave us the scriptures Mm -hmm. like is that the reason we know that those are the scriptures okay and and i said no and i used the michael kruger illustration to show that god reveals his scriptures to us Mm -hmm. and the church acts like the thermometer in recognizing the divine origin of the scriptures. It doesn't make the scriptures divine. Right. Now you
0: mentioned Michael Kruger. I've had Michael Kruger on the show. So if anyone's mm-hmm. like, who's Michael Kruger? Who's
1: this guy he's quoting?
0: He is the author of this excellent book, The Canon Revisited. Mm-hmm. He is an excellent resource on issues of like the canon. And why I highly recommend him is not only he an expert, he really comes at this question from a presuppositional and theological perspective. So um, it's very interesting to kind of see him come at, like, the question of history and theology and the development of canon from kind of that, like, presuppositional approach. So I, I highly recommend uh, this book. That's, uh, I'm sure that's the book you're referring to, but he's, he, maybe another one. He's got a couple of them. So I would mm-hmm. highly recommend that. All right. So um, when we talk about the authority of Scripture, we often refer to the Scripture as self-attesting. Uh, can you unpack for us what that means? And why is it important to understand the Bible in that way?
1: Right. Well, uh, in uh, second, second Corinthians 2.14, it says, The things of the Spirit are spiritually discerned. The man in the flesh cannot know them.
0: Mm-hmm. And right
1: before that, it says, We've received the Spirit of God so that we can understand freely the things that God has given to us. Okay. So um, a man apart from the Spirit of God is going to read these words, and it's just going to be words to him. It's going to be right. words on a page, basically information. For those who have the spirit of God, now we're talking about revelation. There's a big difference between revelation and information. So when the spirit of God lives inside of you and you're reading the scriptures and all of a sudden it could be a scripture that you've read 100 times on the 101st time. All of a sudden God opens an understanding to you and starts connecting dots that you never saw before. And man, things things come to, you know, come to gel together and you start understanding on a deeper level. Again, the spirit of God within us testifies to us that this is the very word of God mm. because it changes. Once you start applying the scriptures to your life in the way you live and the way you treat other people and in the way you worship God and see in apologetic sense, how the, the necessity of the triune God uh, to, to, to solve the problem of the one and the many. Oh, my goodness. You start to to really love God all the more because you recognize that the scriptures are not human in origin, but divine. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I think that's great that you mentioned that too. That makes us stand more in awe of God. I think the study Mm -hmm. of theology, we need to be very careful, especially us who are in apologetics. We tend to be um, very intellectual and we lose, we kind of become desensitized Mm -hmm. to the fact that we're handling like God's word. Like we're talking about like, the nature and the workings of the almighty creator. And so I I hope that the folks who are studying apologetics and theology, like you never lose that sense of awe with what you're dealing with when you're studying
1: things of God. So I think that's a that's a good reminder um, of that. Um, I, I was Amen. talking to my You've said many times the best book to read on apologetics is the scriptures.
0: Yeah. And that's yeah. not, and that's not just being sanctimonious no, and like, it's, oh, it's, it's the scriptures.
1: It literally is the best book to read. Every apologist that writes a book is fallible, right? They're, yep. they're gonna make mistakes and, 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 and what are they doing? They're interpreting God's words mm-hmm. and trying to explain them to us in a way that we can understand. Uh and, and that's great. We need we need guys to continue to do that. And I love reading these books because they help. Uh, Mm. But when you go right to the source, to the scriptures, and you got the Holy Spirit inside of you, oh, my goodness, you now are able to speak with authority because God gave you those words. Right. Right. So that we can know with certainty the things that he's revealed to us because what? He's omniscient. Right. right? Whereas the apologetic author who who writes something doesn't have all knowledge. Mm. We can trust and have certainty once when the words come from God because God's omniscient. So when he reveals something to us, it's it's impossible for it to be wrong.
0: Mm. Yeah, excellent, very good. Okay, so they grilled you on bibliology. Obviously, that's foundational because uh, you wouldn't know anything about God unless God revealed Himself, right? Exactly. So we start we start with divine revelation, God's mm-hmm. own self disclosure. There wasn't mention of kind of like uh, uh, natural revelation and special revelation. Um, and I think they asked you a question relating to the importance. Uh, how do you understand the importance and the role of natural revelation? Why don't you unpack uh, how you answered that question? Why is natural revelation important? What is its function? What does it do? Uh, why is it important for us to be familiar with, uh, what natural
1: revelation is all about? Well, like you've said many times before, God is the father of all facts, right? Mm. So any fact that comes to us from, from nature, Uh, The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament, the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they bring forth knowledge. So the universe is speaking to us on a daily basis. Right. And everything in the universe is created by God. And in some way, shape or form reflects the nature of God to us. So that you can you can look at um, you can look at the vastness of the universe and say, oh, my. and, And just be in awe of how big it is. And what does that point you to? The vastness of God, like He has no end. How, when you realize just how big the universe is, you realize that God's bigger. That should make you more in awe. And then when you see um, the, the the DNA that we have in our bodies, and you recognize that that's a code, you recognize that the universe was created with intelligence behind it. Well,
0: Anthony, Anthony, you're a presuppositionalist, right? Yeah. Why are you talking about all this evidence? You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm talking about the DNA and complexity. Presuppositionalists oh aren't allowed to talk about teleology. I'm just kidding. By what standard are you saying? No, by what yeah, oh, right. standard? No, that that's that's excellent stuff. Now I, I wanted to mention something because we, we had spoken about it over the phone. Uh I think it's important for people to know the difference between natural revelation and natural theology. Sure. Those are very different things. I don't know if you remembered what I said. Do you think you can unpack the difference for us? Since you're yeah, my, I, guess, I, I could I could just blab what I think, but why don't you give us the uh, the important distinction between natural theology and natural revelation because they're not the same,
1: right? And and uh, the way you explained it was perfect, and I'm glad that you did. Mm-hmm. So natural revelation comes from top down, okay. right? This is God revealing uh, us uh, t- Himself to us, such that we can understand his divine nature and eternal Mm. power, right? We see that through the creation. Um, uh, Natural theology is using nature to reason up to the existence of God to know who he is. Mm. I don't think through natural theology we can understand and know the triune God. Um, In fact, John says at the end of his uh, uh, gospel, these things are written so that you may know, that believe and trust in the Son of God that you may have eternal life. We need the scriptures to know who God is specifically. Mm. In fact, God sends Jesus into the world in John chapter one to exegete the Father, to reveal the Father to us. Mm. Matthew 11, 27, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Mm. So, and then we go back to, to Peter's confession. Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus blesses him and says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. So knowing God personally comes through revelation, not information. It's a divine transaction that's necessary for eternal life, Mm. right? No one can see, understand, know the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So without spiritual eyes, you're going to look at the world, you're going to come You're going to you can you can discern and be held with without excuse that God exists, but you can't know in an intimate way who this God is. You need to know him revelationally.
0: Yeah, there there are different ways of knowing. Right. You know, I I ask my students sometimes, does is God all knowing? And they'll say, yes. And does God know everyone? And they'll say, yes. I'm like, really? So uh, let's take a look in the scriptures. It says on Judgment Day, uh, Jesus will say to those on his right, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, entered to the kingdom that has been prepared for you, prepared prepared for you from before the foundation of the world, and to those on his left, he'll say, "Get away from me! I never knew you." So here's a question, class: How does the all-knowing Son of God, who knows all things, can mm-hmm. how can he how can he meaningfully say, "Get away from me! I never knew you"? Um, and there is that I think you captured it well. There's that important mm-hmm. difference of the different senses in which one can know. Um, you could know, and you could know. Relationally. You, you have this Hebrew concept of, of Yada, right? That Adam yada his wife, right? Um, Adam knew his wife and she became pregnant. That's not intellectual knowledge, They're like, oh, she's my wife, and all of a sudden, oh, my water broke. That's not how it works, right? Um, you know, that that uh, sounds like something that happened in a Jerry Lewis movie. Oh my goodness, lady and water broke, you know, it's it, not like that, right? To no. know entails this kind of infinite, this intimate relationship. And I think that's such mm. an important uh thing that we need to have together with our study. Our study must be to the end that we know him more right and jesus says right. this is eternal life to know the one and only the only one god the only true god and the son and his son whom he has
1: sent so i think it's very important yeah jesus um mm-hmm. in fact i think it's in in the book of amos god says uh speaking about israel you only have i known from right. all the nations of the world right, right. So there's this intimate Hesed, covenantal love that god has for his people where he knows them on an intimate basis basically the same way Jesus says, love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, mm-hmm. there's other women in my in my life besides my wife that I love, but there's a special certain covenantal love that I have for my wife that I don't have for the rest of the women right. in the congregation, and I better not, right? Right. So there's a certain special love that God has for his people, for his covenant bride that he doesn't have for the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. That's why it's important to be in covenant and know god personally through the power of the spirit and the only way you could do that is be being born born of the holy spirit now
0: you're talking about love you know it's like all right mm-hmm. god is love we all know this uh how is uh there a little curveball here but it's not too much of a curveball uh i don't play baseball so uh my curveball would be pretty weak but um okay. uh what role or, or why is it important to know about the love of God within the context of apologetics? Because it does come mm. up, right? Is it not sure. the case that that the attribute of God's love is often attacked in apologetics? How, how is understanding the biblical conception of the love of God relevant to the defense of the faith, in your opinion?
1: Okay, God loves people so much that he hates murder. Mm. God loves marriage so much that he hates divorce, mm-hmm. right? There's always that that I I called it a flip side. In fact, in the ordination, I called it the flip side. And one of the, one of the pastors took issue. He's like, what do you mean? That's the opposite. Uh, You're not saying that's the opposite. I said, no, 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 no. So if God loves people, right? Murder would be the antithesis of that. So he Mm. hates murder, right? When you go to first Corinthians 13, love does not rejoice with wrongdoing. Right. So although there's a, there's a general love that God has for all mankind, He loves human beings. Therefore, if you murder a human being, you're you're attacking an image bearer of God. You are attacking his creation. And in the Old Testament, it says an eye for an eye, right? If you take a life, you're going to owe your life. So love, most people watch romantic comedies and they think that's what love is. Unfortunately, that's not what love is. You know, love. And this was a question that one of the guys asked me. And I think you really need to understand what is the biblical definition of love. Hmm. So now we can go to First Corinthians 13 and say love is patient. Love is kind. You know, we could do that. But that and and that obviously captures the essence of what love is about. Love is giving yourself over to someone else for their benefit.
0: It's other centeredness.
1: Other-centered, right? And there's no greater love
0: than this than a man that a man laid down his life for his friend, for a friend.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So love says, "What can I do for you?" Whereas lust says, "What can you do for me?" Mm-hmm. Right. I
0: told so- you guys he's really good at explaining. That That is a really good way of
1: differentiating. <laughs> Just in case you know, <laughs> that. I just repeat really well the things that I've been taught. That's, <laughs> okay. well, I have no original thoughts, and to God be the glory wherever this stuff comes. But you from. have
0: you have original acronyms. I wish people knew <laughs> what, what I was talking about. You got some really pretty good, uh, pretty good acronyms. So, so the love of God is an important doctrine, just as understanding various aspects of who God is. Again, it it helps us in knowing Him more, but it's also helpful uh, because uh, in Jude chapter one verse three it says we are to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered. Well, what are we defending? There's a faith once for all delivered. There's a body of Christian truth that entails doctrine, ideas about God and uh, how they fit together and how they make sense. And understanding doctrine is so important to defending the faith and doing what you have been ordained to do which is function as an elder and a minister uh in the house of god so i think that's that's important now i want to move away from uh we talked about bibliology and the authority of scripture and all these important kind of foundational issues but did you, did you want to expand on something I, I, just, I just
1: want to add one more thing with regards yeah, to God's sure. love i think i think it's it's, it's it, it pertains to theology mm-hmm. uh, and understanding how god loves people so yeah. There's another doctrine that we hold to called divine impassibility. Okay. God is without passions.
0: All right. I want you to I want to stop there, stop you there sure. because my next section was to now move from bibliology to theology. Oh, okay. So, so I wanted to kind of transition because the questions that they grilled you on on bibliology, I think you answered excellent. Uh, but and and sometimes it can be difficult. There, there are issues of like Canon and the history and the theology behind that. And the, my sheep hear my voice. And there, there, there's some difficult concepts there, but things get really hairy when you start talking about the doctrine of God, because there are some really debated issues and a lot of misunderstandings on certain doctrines that really have an impact on all of our other beliefs. I mean, this is the nature of theology, right? What, what you believe mm-hmm. in one area is going to uh, in effect affect what we believe about other things. So, so I want to move from the doctrine of the scriptures to the doctrine of God. Okay. They asked you a bunch of um, theological questions with respect to the nature of God. Uh, what were some of the things that they asked you about? And maybe we
1: can kind of unpack your responses and why it's important. Sure. One of the things they wanted to know uh, was about the nature of God. Uh, Cause I started off by saying that God is good. Good is upright. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instruct sinners in his ways. The Lord is good, a stronghold for those who take refuge in him. The Lord Mm. is good, his steadfast love endures forever. Everything that God does is good. So when you understand the goodness of God and everything he does is righteous and pure and true, that's going to affect your relationship with him Mm. such that, especially as Christians who sometimes have to experience suffering, what does David say? He said, it was good that you afflicted me. Mm. No Christian says that today, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, people are running away from suffering. And obviously, it's painful. You don't want to go through suffering. But there is some suffering that we go through that actually helps us to draw closer to God. I think it was John Piper who said, um, no one ever uh, grows in the mountaintop experiences. It's always when you're walking through the valley that you draw closer to God because, because you recognize your need for him. If you don't recognize your need for Him, which usually comes through suffering, you you, you get into the situation like the judges uh, when Israel was prosperous and doing well. They took their eyes off God. They loved the gift rather than the giver. And God's like, no, 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 don't take your eyes off of me. And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's okay, we love the gift. And God pulls the gift back. And then they start to suffer, and they they set their eyes back on God again. Because God is our greatest gift. He's the thing, He's the only thing we need. Everything else that God gives us is a blessed benefit. Right. So when you recognize that suffering sometimes is part of God's plan, Second Peter says, if it's God's will for you to suffer, mm-hmm. you know, you can do it righteously. You do it with your eyes fixed on God and you entrust your soul to a faithful creator who can who can bring you through it.
0: Mm. Now, so now you now you are you took an exam for uh ordination and you go to a reformed baptist church in 1689 am i correct yes yes okay so um obviously some issues of uh calvinism and calvinism's understanding of say sovereignty comes up um what did they ask you about god's sovereignty and how did you how did you respond and and why is that it why is the way in which you respond uh
1: responded helpful mm-hmm. and encouraging for christians um, they actually, is, they actually didn't ask me any questions with regards to God's sovereignty. Okay. I went, you know, I, I touched on it, you know, with regards and to God. Is it
0: really a Reformed Baptist church then? I mean, come on.
1: <laughs> well, it's so Reformed that they know not even to ask that. That's right. That down pat, you know, that's God's, God's sovereignly in control of everything. Look, if God numbered the number of hairs on my head, I mean, so He's got a lot more time to think about other things for me, you know. Well, it
0: doesn't. really It's not really hard to number the hairs on your head, in. <laughs> I'm saying He's got
1: plenty of time to think about. I, think other I can things number the hairs. Read, on on book. So I'm just kidding. Don't worry. I'm, but I'm I, I love you know the, the the verse that I go back to is it's um in Daniel chapter four, and you want to talk about a a book that. It, 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 it drips of god's sovereignty nebuchadnezzar an unbeliever finally comes to his senses and he says all the inhabitants of the world are counted as nothing and he does as he pleases in the heavens and the earth and beneath the earth and none can stay his sand, his hand and say what have you done mm-hmm. so you know even even you know nebuchadnezzar who um who is who is brought to his knees by god and you know full of hair rolling around in the, in, in the grass recognizes this is a God who's sovereign, who can do whatever he wants. Psalm 115, I ask I asked the congregation this all the time. What can God do? Mm-hmm. Whatever he pleases in the heavens and the earth and beneath the earth. Yeah. God is in control of all things, and he does whatever he pleases. Mm-hmm. And that's an offense to you know depraved human hearts because we want to be in control. We want to do whatever we please. When I went through the omnis, you know, the the omniscience, uh, the omnipresence, the omnipotence of God, all of those things are incommunicable attributes. Those are those are things that God does not share with us. Right. Um, Yet those are all the things that the depraved heart craves. We want we want our knowledge. We want omnisapience, We want all, you know, all wisdom. We want all power. We want the omnis, but we're not God. So, again, our hearts. Are, 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 are wanting something that they can't have. But when you're in relationship with God, you're in relationship with the one who does have them, who you can rely on and trust in who to bring you through things. Mm. All right. So uh, that's excellent. And, and I,
0: I think you said something that I really liked when you did mention, I don't know if they asked you a question about sovereignty, but you did make mention about the nature of sovereignty. It is the pillow Upon which the believer lays his head. What, what was that? I thought that was really cool uh, when you said that.
1: Can yeah. I, 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 again, I think I think that's a I think that's a J.I. Packer quote. Okay. Uh, and I don't I don't I don't have any original quotes. Acronyms, yes. Quotes, no. Um, but it's the pillow upon which you lay your head, because you know uh, if God's in control of all things, all things have a reason and a purpose behind mm-hmm. them, even if I don't know why they happen. This right. this here's, here's a quote I'll give you that I actually had in my last sermon. When When I'm counseling somebody and somebody's going through a difficult situation, I will tell them, I don't know why, but I do know who, mm. right? I know the who behind the why. And if the who is good, if the who is righteous and sovereign and loving and compassionate and long suffering, I know the who behind the why. So the why becomes uh, digestible because the who behind it is for me. He is for me, not against me. So I know that all things work together for good. No one else except for God can promise that. My mom tells me all the time, oh, and it's going to work out. Everything's going to work out. I'm like, mom ah, you can't make that promise. You can't say that. Only <laughs> God, only God can tell me that all things are going to work together for good because That's he's right. in charge of all things. We're not. excellent. Excellent. Yeah.
0: Um and um it's very encouraging especially as a as a reform, as reformed Christians, right? And we have a particular mm-hmm. understanding of God's sovereignty. It is it is a great comfort uh mm-hmm. because God is good. Um it's one the goodness of God, uh, the belief that God is good is a presupposition of the Christian faith. I presuppose yeah. that he's the standard. I don't judge him by another standard. He is the standard and he is self-attestingly the standard. Why is God good? Because he says so. And, uh, what he says, he says, honestly, and it reflects who he is. Um, so that's something that, in other words, God is good. He can't help it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Here we go. Right. He can't, he can't <laughs> help it. Right. Um, uh, you know, the, I mean, the attributes of God are so interesting. I tell my students, I want you to wrap your mind around this. I, you know, I'm talking to my, I teach sixth grade Bible. I try mm-hmm. to help them to stand in awe of, of the God they worship, uh, for God, there is no such thing as over there. Mm. <laughs> I mean, like just just think about that, okay? Right. There, when the Bible says let me go down and see, that's not literally true. God right. is everywhere, he can't help it, right? Mm. Um and so again, it for the unbeliever that's scary, for the
1: believer it's a great comfort, right? That God knows and, and, and it, Yep. Right. It's it's interesting because even uh, I think even believers sometimes misunderstand this because it, they they say, "Well, God's not in hell." And I say, "Well, um, God's wrath is being poured out on those people and it's in the presence of the lamb and his angels. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, that's a tough thing to wrap your head around, but God is omnipresent. Yeah. So His w- what's absent, uh, in hell is God's grace, right? But what is present in, in hell is God's justice. You know, and, and God, and, I mean, God works. has to be present. That has to
0: be present there. Exactly. Um, I think I think the key difference too is that his presence is not manifested in the same way that his ma- his presence is manifested and felt in heaven. His presence is equally there, right. but the manner in which he manifests himself are very different. One manifestation right. is as judge; another manifestation is quite different. Um, right. But he is there, right? Where can we run from his presence? Answer: mm-hmm. nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're playing a big game of cosmic hide
1: and seek, hiding in hell will not hide you, <laughs> right? Okay. So, yeah. Because we're in Christ and He's absorbed God's wrath, we yes. now can be spared that. So the people who are not in Christ are going to, going to experience true justice. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, all God's attributes are perfect. So if it's if it's if you're experiencing God's justice, it's loving justice. It's yes. good justice. It's holy justice. You can't start dividing those things and say, well, it's just just. It's not this. It's it's all of those things at the same time, right?
0: Which leads me to my next question, because I know that there are some hot button topics in the reformed world today, especially in Baptist circles. I know Dr. Mm-hmm. James White has been uh, in the middle of a lot of that. Um, and that's with respect to the doctrine of divine simplicity. Um, how w- I know they asked you about this in, in the exam. What was the question they asked you? How do you define divine simplicity and why is this doctrine important? And then maybe you can, if you're up on the issues, what's the big deal? What's going on in the Baptist, uh, reformed Baptist world with this issue of
1: divine simplicity? Right. So divine simplicity, it basically says that God is not composed of parts, Mm. right? You don't have separate parts that are brought together to make God. You don't have a little bit of love here, a little bit of justice here, put them together. And now you have God. Mm. And the way I answered that was, and he says, well, you know, why? I said, because, if if God was composed of parts, I would want to know who put those parts together because I want I would want to worship that one who put the parts together, who mm. created God, right? God wouldn't be the ultimate creator at that point, there would be somebody behind God creating him. So, God without parts is is very important because he's not composite. If he if he had parts, he would be a contingent being, not a necessary being. Mm. So he's a necessary being because everything has it it derives from his being. He doesn't derive being from anything else. He is being. And I like the way R.C. Sproul used to say it. Um, He he would say, and and he would do it purposely. He would say, God doesn't exist. And people are like, R.C. Sproul said God doesn't exist. And he would say, well, X means out of, is, is being. God doesn't come out of being. Mm. God is being. So but you don't I... say God exists. You say God is, right? God okay. is being. And in him, we live and move and have our being. God is being. He's not becoming anything. He's not, Um, there's no parts. There's nothing behind God that makes God, God. He is, mm. right? He says, I am that I am.
0: Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, mentioning RC Sproul. I love RC Sproul. Mm-hmm. RC Sproul is an excellent teacher, and uh, I agree. <laughs> <him>. He is. <laughs> I'm
1: only kidding. I'm only kidding.
0: He's Gosh. like, but for real though, he's totally <laughs> Baptist <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, actually, for those interested, uh, if you don't know the the YouTube channel Wise Disciple with mm-hmm. Nate Sala, he does the debate teachers react. I will be appearing on that show on December fifth to actually comment on the debate between R.C. Sproul and Greg Bonson over apologetic Mm. methodology. So as much as I love R.C., uh, you know, I come from a more critical uh, perspective with respect to the apologetic issue. But um, if you guys are interested in that, that's December 5th. I'm not sure if it's live. I know that's when we're recording. Uh, but when it's released, I'll let you guys know. Uh, Nate Sala has got a great YouTube channel. You guys should totally check out his debate teacher reacts where he watches debates and reacts to them. And it's just such an excellent way to learn how to think and evaluate different perspectives and to evaluate what makes a debate, a good debate. Okay. So I highly recommend if you have not subscribed to the wise disciple, you need to like click away real quick, subscribe to it and come back. It's excellent. It's one of my favorite channels. Uh, It's growing very quickly. I think Nate is somewhere around 6,000 subscribers and it's wow. growing and he's got a lot of great things uh, to say. And just real quick, I just want to give a shout out to people who have been following this channel. I have reached 6,008 subscribers. So, uh, I've been doing this for two and a half years and that's pretty sweet. And I greatly appreciate, uh, everyone who's shown their support by subscribing, uh, purchasing a course or signing up for, a conference or whatever mm-hmm. has just messaged me some encouraging message. I even appreciate my critics. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your, your thoughts and things like that. Well, we're at 50 minutes right now. We're going to go 10 more minutes and then maybe take some questions. There's not a lot of questions uh, here. It's kind of late and everything, but uh, we'll try to. I will grab- long
1: enough. I was grilled long off. No
0: more questions. No more. Yeah. No more, no more. So, so uh, if there are some questions in the chat, I'll we'll try to address some of them. If there's not, that's okay as well. Um, and just to get, oh, I forgot to say. Okay, tomorrow. Tomorrow is not tomorrow. Sorry. Thursday. Thursday, I will be having Jeff Durbin of Apologia Church on the show to talk about presuppositionalism and the Christian mind. Um, and so you guys definitely want to uh, be there, be here for that. Uh, bring your questions. We'll take questions towards the back end. That's gonna be super uh, exciting. Um, so um, okay, okay, that, that's it. So let's continue on. We got I got got you for for 10 more minutes. Um, as long as you
1: need me, Pal? I'm here.
0: So they they talked about bibliology. They grilled you on the doctrine of God. What about issues of Christology? Did they ask you about the doctrine of Christ, uh, different heresies that have crept in the church, how you would respond to them? Um, how did you, what What did they ask? And again, how is what they asked apologetically relevant?
1: Sure. They asked uh, with regards to the eternal subordination uh, of, mm. of the son. So I was explaining to them uh, that the son has always been the son. Right. Mm-hmm. In, in other words, if we had eter- if God, the father is eternal father, the term father necessitates son. You can't be father without a son. So father and son have existed side by side for all eternity. And my position is that they're co-powerful, co-equal, co-eternal. Right. They're they're equal in in every sense of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, the son does when he comes when he when he takes on flesh in the incarnation does submit to god the father but he submits to him as a human being i don't believe that the son subordinates or submits to god in eternity past um because they're co-equal they enter into covenant together okay yeah. so so would you
0: say so you would reject what is called eternal subordination
1: yes and i know there's there's some really good guys that hold it wayne grudem um, I forget who else, but th- th- there's some prominent guys okay. who, who hold to that. There was another question that that I was asked. Um, could Jesus have sinned? Hmm. Right. And my answer was, as a man, he could have. He had the capacity to sin. Right. Now, the, the guys on the panel didn't press me on that, although I know that they, they hold that. He, it's called impeccability. Jesus is Im- impeccable. He couldn't sing. Uh, and I had spoke to, you know, my co-elders afterwards and uh, they had expressed to me that, you know, they hold to I- impeccability also. And I started thinking, I'm like, again, I- I'm I'm not smart enough to come up with these things on my own. So I remembered hearing that from somewhere. So I looked, at, I looked around and I found R.C. Sproul did not hold to divine impeccability. He said that it was possible for jesus to sin in his humanity but based on god's decree he couldn't
0: yes i think that's a key point because when we when we start talking about these sorts of things Mm -hmm. you need to delineate the way in which you mean what you know how is something there are different ways in which something can be possible uh and the the example that's often used anthony is the bones of jesus the bones of jesus that's yeah what I oh, excellent i didn't get to that part yeah so what, why don't you explain to us why don't you explain to us the bones of jesus and <laughs> how that relates to the different senses in which things can be possible and then impossible in one sense
1: impossible in another sense sure so jesus obviously as a human being had bones right uh, and having bones means that you know one of them could be broken you have the capacity to to break a bone as a human being mm-hmm. but in god's decree and in his word it was said that not one of his bones would be broken. So according to God's decree, none of Jesus's bones would ever be broken. Yet they had the capacity to be broken. Okay. Right. So the, the way I see it is Jesus had the capacity to sin, but never would because of God's decree. Okay. And because he came to fully submit to the will of God, the father. right now, I, I also found out that it wasn't just R.C. Sproul that held this view. It's Sinclair Ferguson that held this view. Uh, mm-hmm. Joel Beakey holds this view. Charles Hodge holds this view. Um, there was there was there was five or six prominent uh, Reformed theologians that did not hold to the impeccability of Christ. So I I kind of felt better that I wasn't like walking in heresy. Even though we can respectfully disagree about that, I don't believe that Jesus sinned. I believe he was completely sinless. Right. Right? I think that would be an issue if I said, "Well, Jesus did sin." Well, then we don't have a Savior. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? So Jesus was completely sinless, but I believe that he did—he—he—he he, he was tempted in every way as we were,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Yet did not sin, right? He was tempted and tried, yet did not sin. I think it takes away the force of that verse if you say, well, he couldn't sin, mm-hmm. right? It, then he wasn't tempted in every way we were, in in, in one sense, mm-hmm. right? So I, I went back to, again, what, what Sproul says with uh, quoting Martin Luther, uh, passe Picari, passe non picari it was possible to sin, possible not to sin. If Jesus is the second Adam, right, I would think he would be made the same way Adam was, which is, Passe picari, possible to sin, right? And passe non picari, possible to not sin. Mm. So that's that's the way that's I'm a thinking.
0: that's an interesting topic, right there. That's
1: uh it is. Oh, it is. Yeah.
0: So now so in order to be ordained, you had to you had to have your hands in a bunch of different the you had to have a good general overview of basically just like systematic theology and doctrine.
1: Sure.
0: Yeah. So and a lot of prep, uh, I'm sure went into that. I for sure. Yeah, right? well,
1: you know, I, I think I think. Again, um, we need to move back to a more biblical understanding of eldership. And elders, I think, are there to shepherd the flock of God. They need to be tested and they need to be proven as true shepherds. Um, Unfortunately, I think, you know, in today's modern American church, some people are elders, they're shepherds who may not have been tested or tried. And this is when you talk about the nature of God, this is where most of the heresies come into the church. Right. Heresies stem from inside the church, not outside the church. And it usually it usually deals with the nature of God. You know, was Jesus one person with two natures? Was he two people with one nature? You know, and you start hashing these things out. Is he is he little God like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe? Is he a God? Uh, in a multiplicity of gods, like the Mormons believe, so I think as a as a as a as a shepherd of the sheep, uh, 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 a biblical elder, you need to know these things. How are you going to guard your people, guard God's not my people, but God's people, from false teachers? If you can't identify false teaching, right. you need to know what truth is in order to identify false teaching to protect them from. Those false teachings mm. and teachers it.
0: it's so that's so important. And, and I, I notice I've I've grown I've grown up in churches my entire life. I mean, my earliest memory has been in church. I mean, mm. I was probably born under the pew somewhere in 1982 <laughs> on July 30th. But um it's you don't often see uh, again, it depends what church you go to, right? But a lot of churches across America, you don't often see theological sermons. A lot of sermons are very just like pragmatic, like practical, and that and there's definitely a place for that for sure. Um, but there, there seems to be a doctrine is almost like something that's relegated to like the little classroom. Right. So after mm-hmm. we leave big church, there's like, this other classroom then we can talk about theology and you could sign up for that. Or you can sign up for, you know, uh, married couples with two children, you know, the small group with very specific, you know,
1: <laughs> right. um,
0: theology isn't always kind of like a central focus, but, um, I think it's important, um, that, uh, orthodoxy, right. Orthodoxy, right. Belief is the foundation for orthopraxy. Right. Yeah. Right. Action, yeah. and without that theological, see pragmatics, okay, flow out of the, or grow out of the soil of doctrine, and so everything mm-hmm. has to flow from that from that bedrock. And I think grilling you and asking all those questions, uh, I think, is an excellent way to equip a leader to be mm-hmm. able to preach and shepherd from mm-hmm. a foundation of doctrine, so that you're giving information, the pragmatic aspect. From a place that is contextualized in God's word and really brings us back to who God is, what He said, how does His authority function and play a role in the problems of the people of the church? and mm-hmm. what that looks like for them. So, um, so yeah, I think it's excellent stuff. So Anthony, we're at the top of the hour. Um, would you like to say anything, any last words before we close things off and kind
1: of uh, I think there's maybe just one question we'll, we'll tackle that. And yeah, then we'll, uh, no, worries. no, well, well, first of all, I just, I just want to uh, thank you for having me on. It's, it's, it's truly an honor to be on your show. Um, for those of you who follow Eli, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of his, uh, I think he is one of the one of the guys on the Internet that can have a respectful, congenial, uh, compassionate conversation with somebody he disagrees with and yet remain friends with them. Mm-hmm. So I would I would recommend that you watch his show. You emulate how he deals with people who oppose his position. Uh, and I would suggest because I have I have a, a really, really good friend who is he's a Christian, uh, but he's theologically opposed to my positions. And we love each other dearly, and he 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 really challenges me, and I challenge him, and it has been one of the greatest growing uh, growth spurts for me because he asks me questions with regards to reform theology, and I'm so used to being in my little bubble that I don't get pressed. And he asks me questions and it makes it drives me back to the scriptures Mm -hmm. and it makes me give a a better answer for what it is I believe and why. So I highly encourage you to interact with other people who oppose your views, because that's the way you're going to be tested like it, like in an ordination. You're pressed such that you now you have to start really thinking and unearthing and going back to the scripture and and get through the finer points. The Mm -hmm. best thing about it is. Once you're tested in this way, ninety percent of your other conversations, when you're evangelizing and talking to family and friends, are not even going to get to this level. But you know that you could go there if necessary.
0: Hmm. Excellent. So I, I
1: would, I would, I would just strongly recommend people continue watching your show and the way you model how to love people who are in opposition to whatever view it is that we take. And we, as a church worldwide, need to start. Working together, even through theological differences. I don't care Calvinism, Arminianism, uh, uh, paedo-baptism, credo-baptism. As the church of Jesus Christ, we can differ on those things, stay stay grounded on the essentials, and take dominion over the world that God's given us. The enemy Mm -hmm. loves to divide us up, chop us up into these little parts, and render us ineffective. We need to be one as he is one. Right. And when we we become one, we can start doing what God has called us to do. We should never, ever, ever be afraid of someone who doesn't know what a man or a woman is ever, (laughs) ever. Okay, we have truth. We use truth. Right. To confront lies. Just last week from the pulpit, I I told people, you know, we're, we're coming into the Christmas season and you tell me what you think. What is the most peaceful time of the year?
0: The most peaceful time?
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't know. Christmas is pretty violent with them sales in the stores
1: and the mall. <laughs> well, if you're home and you don't go out to the stores, Christmas tends to be the most peaceful, joyous time of the year. Okay. Years, yeah. Right? Okay. And, and the question is why? And I think the, the answer, one of the answers anyway, is because you have unbelievers who are singing hymns on a regular mm-hmm. basis, praising God without even knowing it. Mm-hmm. Worship matters. What you sing matters. Mm-hmm. That's why it's so important to be in a healthy church that worships God in spirit and in truth and has a vibrant prayer meeting. Those are our strongest weapons against the enemy. Mm-hmm. Why is Christmas the most peaceful time of year? Because you have unbelievers singing, Come, let us adore him. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. They're singing these songs and they don't even know who they're about. And evangelism during the Christmas season has always been the most fruitful time for me because their hearts are softened. They're singing the hymns without knowing it. And God's working in their in their minds and hearts. It's an easy, an easy way to transition into evangelism.
0: Well, thank you very much for that. I appreciate it. And thank you for those kind words. I do appreciate that as well.
1: You're you're worthy of them. Well, thank you.
0: Um, Well, let's take uh, the few questions here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Young Flav says, "Any book recommendations? What What is your best recommendation for someone who wants to get a good grasp on biblical theology and systematic theology? Do you have any specific suggestions? I this. There's,
1: there's there's two that I like. Uh, I love Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, okay, and I love John MacArthur's uh, systematic theology. Both of those oh, yeah, are, okay. are, are are really really good. I would say." Uh, for 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 eldership, the best book that I've ever come across is Biblical Eldership by Alex Strouch. Okay. Um, this book I read about three years ago, and I wish every person in the congregation would read it to understand what an elder is, why an elder is important, why we have a plurality of elders and not a single elder, um, why elders have to be tested, even though, you know, I wasn't looking forward to my grilling. It was very, very much worthwhile because you know I was tested and and proved worthy to hold the office. So it's it, it helps your confidence and sure. it proves to the congregation that yes, this is a person who's who's studied and is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination and still have so much more learning and growth to do, but somebody who's competent enough to to shepherd the flock and guard them from false teachers right excellent
0: i have here the wayne grudem systematic theology the second edition so a lot of people might be familiar with the blue book this is the newest one that came out it's got extra chapters extra sections he's got sections on molinism um i think theistic evolution so it's kind of an update it's actually a worthy update if you're wondering like huh well if he's got a new version out there is it any different from the older one well yeah it's got some extra stuff here so a good systematic theology again you know, you might not agree with everything. He comes from a Calvinistic perspective. Right. This is my favorite systematic theology, not because I agree with everything, but because it's written for the average person. I mean, you, sure, you could read a Lewis Burkhoff, but after right. you read Lewis Burkhoff, you're going to be like, you know, your glass is going to be calling off. You have like clear liquid coming out of your ears, right? Um, I like but, the uh, Wayne. You know Wayne, the the, dumb, other,
1: the other the other two things that you the other two books that I would recommend people to. To go to on a more basic level is R.C. Sproul's. Everyone's a theologian. Mm-hmm. Right. And essential truths of the Christian faith, both right. by R.C. Sproul, uh, a, a very watered down systematic theology that you can go through. It's digestible, understandable, and then you can move your way up to, you know, a Wayne Grudem, John MacArthur, Lewis Burkhoff type stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, Gile, uh, Jai, sorry. Jai Balin says the sovereignty of God is the pillow uh, on which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace by Charles Spurgeon. Also, <laughs> I think Charles Spurgeon. Maybe, maybe, maybe Jerry Packer was quoting Charles Spurgeon. Could've
1: been, could've, by well, the way, you, Charles
0: Spurgeon is in the room with you right now as we speak. Is he not? Yes, he is. He's right over there. Yeah. See, he was kind of funnel bombing this whole video. <laughs> um, uh, I have, have yet, yet to bow down to that one though.
1: Uh, sorry. To Charles Spurgeon.
0: Now, now again, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night. It is mm-hmm. because God decrees everything, everything mm-hmm. has a purpose in time. And for mm-hmm. that reason, we can trust that God's purposes will come to fruition. Even when it's scary, even when you don't mm-hmm. know what's going to happen, we know the one who does know and we can place our trust in him. So we trust in a sovereign God and it does give us mm-hmm. peace. Um, Contrary to popular opinion, I don't think that the decrees of God is uh, a reflection of God's monstrous personality. I think it is an expression of His care, His wisdom, and His uh, purposes unfolding in the world that He's created. So, um, yeah, thank you for sharing that that quote there. Did you have anything you wanted to add to that?
1: Uh, yeah, I would say you know the, the 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 greatest example of God's sovereignty would be the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, hmm. right? So here, w- w- undoubtedly. Um, the greatest evil that ever could have been perpetrated in humankind was the yeah. crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He's the only innocent man who ever lived, never did anything wrong, yet he was put on a cross. That's the greatest evil ever to be perpetrated. And out of that greatest evil, God brings about the greatest good in the purchasing of of the of his people uh, for himself and and the payment the atonement for their sins. Hmm. So here you have the greatest evil bringing about the greatest good because God decreed in his in his sovereignty and in his intention to allow that to bring that to pass and bring about the greatest good. So if God could bring about the greatest good out of the greatest evil at the cross, what can he do with the evil that's happened to you in your life? That's right. Thank you for that. Uh,
0: Kevin C says, "Are both of these guys Reformed Calvinists?" Yep, <laughs> Baptist of the Baptist leaning, right? I am the Reformed rookie. That's right. That's right. We're not. We're not, we're not baby dippers. We're not baby dippers. We are baby. We are as the Presbyterians call us. We're baby haters. We hate our babies because we don't baptize them. So, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, nem to geez, I'm so sorry, I don't know exactly how to say that, but uh, if every word found in scripture is dire, I don't know what that means. How when a proponent of Christianity, uh, the Christianity objection who says hypothetically, uh, ooh, that's okay, this is this is a rough one because I have to get the grammar. I'm gonna read it as is as best I can. If every word found in scripture is dire, how when a proponent of the Christianity objection who says hypothetically, rejects a single book like Nehemiah, have they not compromised intelligibility? Now that's a mouthful. I think I know what you're saying. And then he follows up, wouldn't the God who reveals Nehemiah be different from a God who does not? Okay.
1: Okay. Well, I'll address the second part first, because part of our worldview is that there is only one true God. So there wouldn't be two gods uh, issuing two different books, right? Because that's not the Christian worldview. Christian worldview is that there's one God. Right, who reveals Himself right. to us through Jesus and gives us His Word. Mm-hmm. I, what I, I'm not so sure I understand what Christianity is. Yeah. So if f-
0: folks are interested, I have an entire episode just on Christianity. There's an Ooh. I have. A, I was literally looking at it. It's entitled Christianity Refuted. Um, right now, it's got like a thousand views. Uh, came out a while ago. I highly recommend people watch it. Okay. It addresses. It addresses what is called the Christianity objection. So it's related to a critique of the transcendental argument for God's existence. So if I argue that the necessary precondition for intelligible experience and knowledge is the Christian worldview, uh, because the Christian worldview provides the preconditions for knowledge, intelligible experience, history, philosophy, anything. okay? Uh, someone might say, well, what if there is this hypothetical position that uh, that holds to a God that is similar to the God of the Bible in every single way, except maybe like one little difference? Couldn't that be sufficient to ground intelligible experience? Okay. Um, And so he's saying here, what happens if I hold to a worldview in which the Christian God is similar to the Christian God, except in the world he created, the book of Nehemiah was never inspired and given to us? Does that affect the nature of the God that we're talking about? No. Okay. It wouldn't. Okay. Because a God who does not it, it is not inconsistent with God. Uh, God was free to inspire Nehemiah or not to inspire Nehemiah. Okay. We we live in a world in which God has actually decreed that Nehemiah would be inspired, but that is not a uh, the kind of proposition, Nehemiah is scripture, that if you removed would make us be talking about a different God or it would not be necessarily be a different worldview. Right. Because there's a more general principle undergirding that. Our worldview entails that God has revealed himself, okay? A God who has not revealed Nehemiah still revealed himself, and so what he reveals would still be sufficient for intelligible experience. Everything in Nehemiah, its theology, is uh, buttressed by other places of Scripture that touch on similar issues, right? Uh, so that would not touch the intelligible intelligibility of the Christian faith. Now, the reason why Christianity doesn't work is because we're talking about necessary preconditions for knowledge uh, an ultimate transcendental foundation for intelligible experience. You can only have one of those. So if someone says, well, what of this hypothetical Christianity position? Well, you have a problem. Do you hold to Mm Christianity? If you say you hold to Christianity, then I'm going to grill you. Okay. We're gonna talk about unpack that worldview. If you say I don't hold to Christianity, it's just a hypothetical. My question then is where are you standing when you're giving this hypothetical? If Christianity is a hypothetical competitor as being the only foundation for intelligible experience, but you don't hold to it, nor are you holding to the Christian worldview, which I'm claiming is the only foundation, then that assumes that you could neutrally float between these two options and talk intelligibly about them. (laughs) You can't because there's no neutrality, right? So I would say that you either accept Christianity and argue for its transcendental necessity or accept Christianity or don't use the Christianity objection because it's going to be open to the same sorts of criticisms, okay? Now, again, I'm not going into detail on purpose. There's an entire video on it. The, I mean, the episode is literally like an hour and a half and we cover all sorts of issues relating specifically to this objection. So um, I highly recommend people check that out. Okay. Um, all right. See, that's it here. Okay. Well, Anthony, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on. And, thank um, you. I, I, I want to pray for you because mm-hmm. now you have successfully passed And now you are placed in a position where you will need prayer. So, um, you know, if uh, if people who are watching your believers, please join me in prayer as we pray for uh, Anthony in his new position at his church. Um, This is a position that is an honorable position uh, and that we pray that God uses him um, in an effective way so that he could function in that capacity uh, to the best possible way that he that he possibly can by the grace of God. Okay, All right. So. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, Lord. We thank you so much for uh, your love towards us, your mercy and grace towards us. Uh, We thank you for your salvation that you've given us, um, giving us Christ, granting us faith and repentance, Lord. We thank you for all of those things. We also thank you for the honor and the privilege to serve um, in in your church uh, for the kingdom, Lord. And so the role of elder and pastor, Father God, is a lofty role with great responsibility. And so I just pray, uh, grant Anthony the grace to function in that capacity in a way that will be effective for your kingdom and beneficial and edifying for the body of Christ, Lord. Give him words of wisdom. Um, help him to never lose the passion and love that is required to do ministry. Uh, we don't, you know, ministry, people don't shouldn't go into ministry for money. Uh, it's not a glamorous uh thing, it's very difficult. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to give him passion and love for you and may that love that he has for you um, be expressed in his obedience towards you in the role that you have given him, Lord. So we just pray, give him the wisdom and strength to do that. Well, we thank you, Lord. We love you. And we pray all of this in Jesus name.
1: Amen. Amen. All right, brother.
0: Well, I really appreciate
1: it. Love you too. Keep on press
0: on. Same, same to you, brother. And uh, hopefully I'll get you back on. We can talk more about something related more specifically to apologetics, but I think this was very relevant to it. So
1: thank you so much. You got it. God bless you, brother. Bye-bye.
0: All right. God bless. And everyone else, thank you so much. Be sure to tune in on Thursday. I'll have Jeff Durbin on 9 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, December 2nd. I think that's December 2nd. Uh, Until then, take care and God bless. Bye-bye.